Good morning, everyone. It's so nice to see you all here on this 4th of July weekend. Because I've gotten this question a few times so far this morning, I'm just going to start by saying, no, I will not be going into labor while I am up here preaching this sermon today. <laughs> this is not the plan. We have 26 more days, and we are going to use all of them. In our series talking about the characteristics of the kingdom of God, we've been asking the question, how are we now to live under God's reign as citizens of this kingdom? And these scriptures that we just read from Matthew 22 answer that in the most straightforward way. Jesus tells us exactly how we are to live. And even if we just take these verses at face value and commit to living them out, the world would automatically be a holier and better place. But I think these seemingly simple verses are a lot like those commercials that we used to see when we used to see a lot of commercials where you see a product that they're trying to sell and you think, oh, this is a really good product. I think I'm really interested. And then you hear, but wait, there's more. Call in the next 24 hours and you can get this, a $60 value, completely free. And you think, ooh, they just sweetened the deal. I'm very interested. Now I should make sure I call in the next 24 hours. And then you hear, but wait, there's more. Call in the next five minutes and we'll throw in free shipping. And you think this cannot get better. That's what I think about these verses. At the outset, just at face value, they tell us how we are to live as followers of Christ in this world. By loving God and by loving others. But... They, they basically pare everything down into our most basic, fundamental purpose for living as God's people in this world. And they are not overly burdensome, they're not overly complicated, and they're not impossible to fulfill. And that is good news. And I imagine that it was especially good news for the first century listeners, the children of God who heard Jesus say this for the first time, who had been striving for generations to love God by following the law which was kind of difficult because there were 613 of them and you had to obey all of them in order to be righteous. The verse, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind is a direct quote of Deuteronomy 6.5, which is called the Shema. And it's the most fundamental part of the Jewish scriptures. And it's what Moses says to the Israelites before he gives them God's law. And Moses says, by obeying this law, you will be righteous, and that will show your love for God. But over time, we know that people separated the two. They found, as we all do, that you can follow the letter of the law without being guided by love. And maybe some people did that intentionally, but perhaps most of them were genuinely trying to follow the law in order to be righteous, in order to love God. And over time, they just became slaves to the letter of it instead of being able to be governed by the spirit of it. But then with these verses, Jesus calls them back, quoting first the Shema and then connecting it with verses in Leviticus that tell us to love our neighbors as ourselves. And then Jesus says this, all of the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. You know, Jason spoke last week about the upside-down kingdom of God, and this is one more example of that. Rather than follow the law in order to show your love for God, Jesus flips it and says, love God and love others, and in doing so, you will follow the law. It must have been like 
a breath of fresh air for people who wanted so desperately to be right with God, but who had been told for some reason that they were unrighteous or unholy, unable to participate in the life of God. They may have felt like they weren't good enough or weren't obedient enough or weren't disciplined enough. Maybe some of us have occasionally felt that way as well. But that's the good news of these verses, that love is enough. That God's love for us makes us enough. And we don't earn this love. We can't earn this love. But we simply live in response to it by loving God and by loving others as ourselves. And that is enough for God, too. So the invitation of Jesus to those first listeners is the same invitation that Jesus gives us today. It's the invitation to participate in God's kingdom here on earth, right now. We've, already, we've also talked about the already not yet kingdom of God. This is some of that already part. That this is how we participate in the life of God here while we're on earth. By loving God with our whole selves and by loving our neighbors as ourselves. And I could end this sermon right now and just walk away. And we'd all be good. But wait, there's more. A lot of us treat these verses as if they're basically one in the same. That the way we love God is by loving people. And I do think there's merit to that thought. But for today, I want to take a moment and consider that these two verses are two separate things. Connected, but separate. And so let's handle the first one first. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your mind. The first question that I have when I read that verse is, how in the world do we do that? How do we love God with everything in us? It makes me wonder why Jesus didn't just stop at love the Lord your God. Why did he go into with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind? I assume he was making the point that our love for God should be all-encompassing. That it cannot be compartmentalized into one realm of our being or one facet of our lives or one day of our week. That to love God means that we posture our whole selves towards God. And as Jason mentioned last week, this is a process and sometimes a slow one. We may be in good practice of loving God one way, only to realize that we still have some work to do to love God in another way. You know, it's telling that when Luke tells this story in Luke's gospel, the Pharisees that originally asked the question hear Jesus' response, and then one Pharisee goes, okay, but who is my neighbor? Hmm? And Jesus tells them the story, the parable of the Good Samaritan. And that story and the response of the listeners in the crowd show us that these two greatest commandments may be more difficult to fulfill than we originally realize. Not because God makes them difficult, but because we do. I know a pastor who likes to say, Jesus may be in your heart, but grandpa's in your bones. Which means we all have things to overcome. Traditions, histories, complexities, biases, assumptions that have been a part of our life, sometimes since even before we are born. And this is our constant work as we seek to love God with our whole selves. is to continue to give ourselves more and more over to God's love. So that we can more and more live out that love in our own lives. As we do this, as we strive to be the people who love God with our hearts and our souls and our minds, we become like, well, I like to call them the bridge people. 
See, there's this amusement park water ride called Splash Waterfalls. It's just a simple little thing. There's a boat that seats about 20 people. It goes around this pool and up an incline and then back around the pool high up and then it drops and that's the ride. You get on the boat, you get wet when it drops. It's fun for everybody. But that's not the best part of the ride. The best part is the fact that there's this bridge that goes over the pool so that when you're exiting the ride, you have to walk across the bridge. Now, you could be like regular people and just walk across the bridge and exit into the amusement park below, beyond, or you can be like the bridge people. The bridge people are the ones that as they're exiting, they grab onto that railing and they brace themselves against it. And as the boat on the next ride comes down, a surge of water comes across that bridge and just soaks you to your core. You would get wet on the ride itself, but you would get drenched on that bridge. And seriously, your clothes, everything would just leak behind you for the next 10 minutes. Wherever you walked in this amusement park, we could just follow you. Because we know, because the water is just flowing out of you. This is what I think happens when we turn our attention to loving God with all of our hearts and souls and minds. We will get utterly soaked in God's love. And this is how I see these two commandments connecting. The first commandment functions like that surge of water on the bridge, soaking our lives in love that then pours back out of us, flowing in all directions, leaving a trail of love in the wake of our lives. And this is how we get from the first commandment to the second, to love our neighbors as ourselves. When we're soaked in God's love, we cannot help but allow that love to flow out of us. Or, since we're talking about love, I also like to think of it like rose-colored glasses. You all know what I'm talking about. When people first fall in love, they tend to see the whole world through the lens of that love. Everything becomes wonderful and magical and sparkly all over again. When I was growing up, my mom really got me interested in the Carpenters. Do you remember that music group? Um, and they have a song called Close to You that says, Why do birds suddenly appear every time you are near? If I had a better voice, I'd sing it for you, but I don't. And Parker's down there, and it's too hard to get him up here. Why do stars fall down from the sky every time you walk by? When people fall in love, it's like they notice things that they've never noticed before. They're paying attention to the world in a whole new way. They see everything through the lens of this love, through their rose-colored glasses. And when we soak in and live out the reality of God's love, it's like we put on God's rose-colored glasses. We cannot help but see the world, God's world, and God's created beings in the same way that God does, which is through the lens of God's love. This is why scripture can make such bold claims like, everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Or, if we love one another, God lives in us, and God's love is made complete in us. Our love for God is most clearly evidenced in how we love others. And since we're called to love God with our whole selves, without compartmentalization, that certainly applies to how we are called to love others as well. So, I'm going to ask you some questions that someone recently asked me, and that I'll be honest with, I, I'm still struggling with them a little bit. But I'm going to put them out here for you so we can, do, we can struggle with this together. Here's our first question. 
how do we love God with our finances? We may regularly tithe, but if our love for God is not compartmentalized, then how am I loving God with the other 90% of my income? Furthermore, how are we loving our neighbors with our finances? How do our buying or spending habits show our love for others, neighbors that are both here and around the world? How do we love our neighbors with our driving? Ooh. When we're late, do we show the same consideration for other drivers as we do when we're not in a hurry? Does God's love influence our politics? Do we make choices on policy or candidates according to what's best for us? Or do those choices show a love of neighbor? Again, both near and far. And furthermore, how do we show our love to the people who make different political choices than we do? Can we say that our love for God is evidenced in how we treat those that we disagree with? These are challenging questions. And they've definitely challenged me to rethink how I love God with my heart and soul and mind and how and whether I'm effectively loving others as myself. But these questions lead me to one more aspect about these verses that I think we need to consider today. It's our final, but wait, there's more. In addition to being good news at face value, in addition to helping us know how to live like the soaking wet bridge people or how to put on God's rose-colored glasses, these verses also give us the metric by which everything else is to be measured. And that metric is love. Love is the essence of who God is. In fact, it's the only characteristic that scripture claims in this way. We see other words used to describe God's character, words like faithful or merciful or just, but scripture never equates those things with God, never says that God is justice, God is mercy. But the Bible does say that God is love. Love is at the core of God's being. Love is the reason that God is just and merciful and faithful. Love is what binds our triune God together in perfect unity. And love is what invites us into that relationship as well. So in God's kingdom, under God's reign, we know that love is the defining characteristic, the overarching theme. And as we participate in God's kingdom now... We are to let that love be our guide, our measuring stick, our metric for choosing what is good and right. We don't always know what to do. We don't always know how to think about something. We've heard the songs that tell us that love is the answer, and in a lot of ways I'm sure that's true. But I think these verses tell us that love is also the way we come to our answer, how we decide what our answer is. And I feel like I need to stop and give a caveat here because we also know that in our world, we throw around the word love like it's nobody's business. There was a scene from a movie that I used to watch growing up where two high school students, high school girls were walking through their hall and they were philosophizing. And one girl says, you know, there is a difference in like and love because I like my Skechers, but I love my Prada backpack. <laughs> and the girl beside her goes, but I love my Skechers. And the first girl goes, hmm, that's because you don't have a Prada backpack. <laughs> She's like, oh, okay. We use this word love for all sorts of things. So when we talk about letting love be our guide, letting love be our metric, 
We're not just talking about any use of the word love that we can throw around in our world. We're talking about the love that we see exemplified by Christ on the cross. The self-giving, self-sacrificing love of Jesus. In any given situation, we may not know the right answer. We may not know the right decision. But I truly believe that if we let that love of Christ be our guide, our metric that determines what decision we make, then we can't go wrong. Even if we do err, we will do well to err on the side of love. So, if we can be right or if we can be loving, we should choose love. If we can be first or we can be loving, we should choose love. If we can have our own preferences or our own comforts or we can be loving, we should choose love. May we be the people who participate in God's kingdom now, here on earth, by choosing to love well. May we be the ones who help set the record straight about our loving God and God's incredible love for this world. When people find themselves hurt by religion or by the church and they want to walk away, may we be the ones whose lives evidence God's love. May we be the ones who say, but wait, there's more. There's more room at God's table. There's more love to be had. In God's kingdom, there is always more.